Hey guys, it's Raina, your Friday morning bestie. Welcome back to Those Murder Girls podcast. And thank you so much for downloading this very special episode. Today's case is that of Michael Darnell Bell Jr., who vanished without a trace on September 16th, 2011. So I learned about this case on a Facebook group called The Missing and Unidentified, and it was posted by another member who goes by Keish Keisha. This was about a few months ago. And the more that I analyzed this case, it was clear that in Michael's disappearance, there was a lot that wasn't known. And I couldn't take my mind off of the possibility that foul play was involved, even though everything online that you see kind of just points in the direction that maybe Michael willingly went missing. But I honestly just knew in my heart that there was so much more to the story. And I even reached out to Keish Keisha to see if she had any personal relationship or connections with Michael, which she didn't because it was really, really bothering me and I needed to know more. So I started digging for information that made sense to me and I couldn't find anything. That was until I came upon a book that was published in 2022 by Michael's mom, Deanna McKnight Bell. Deanna's primary reason for publishing Michael's story was that so Michael's young son, who was only two and a half years old at the time of Michael's disappearance, would have firsthand knowledge of the effort that was brought forth to find his father and bring his father home. Deanna was on the front lines of Michael's search from the get-go, and she is probably the only one that can give these accurate accounts of who was contacted, what's been done, and what was learned in the search for Michael. All of the information that I obtained from this book I use for this episode, which you can buy on Amazon. I've provided the links on social media, and the link is also in the episode notes wherever you're listening now. So let's get started with Michael Darnell Bell's story. Deanna and Michael Bell Sr. welcomed Michael Jr. into their world on January 26, 1983. He was their first child, and little did they know, Michael would go on to make them more proud than the two could have ever imagined. He went from a sweet boy just bringing so much joy into their world to a toddler with all of this energy and expelling all this love and joy for life to a star athlete as he entered into adolescence and middle school and high school, to this beautiful man who was respected, successful, and just a joy to be around. And this is the Michael that went missing on September 16th, 2011. As a young boy, Michael had dreams and wishes, and those dreams and wishes would come true. Michael's parents would not only welcome one baby sister into the family, but two little girls just years apart. And these girls were Michael's pride. He loved his sisters so much. At a very young age, Michael had beginning asking his mother for sisters. And boy, oh boy, did God answer his prayers. Michael, like I said, grew up to be a star athlete. He excelled in basketball and taekwondo at a very young age, winning his first state championship title in taekwondo when he was only eight years old. And he was also a star on the football field, winning multiple MVP titles and going on to play in middle school and high school. Just amazing. All of his coaches, friends, and his family along the way. 
all while holding a spot on the high school's varsity basketball and track team. Michael was just an all-star, on and off the track and in the classroom. Michael would earn cum laude honors on the National Latin Exam. Michael was exceptional academically and socially. He would go on to graduate from Michigan State on a four-year football scholarship in 2008, earning a degree in interdisciplinary studies and another in social science and community relations. Not long after Michael's graduation, Tragedy would strike in April of 2009 when Michael Bell Sr. was senselessly murdered in Cleveland, Ohio, a murder that is still to this day cold and unsolved. September 16, 2011 started off like any other day for the Bell family. Deanna and her youngest daughter lived in Cleveland, Ohio, while Michael and his older sister shared an apartment in Los Angeles. Michael's sister had moved out to L.A. first, and she loved it so much and knew that her brother would too. So on his 25th birthday, January 2011, Michael made the move to L.A., and his sister was right. He loved the California sunshine and everything about it. The Bell family had a lot going on on September 16th. Michael was dropping his sister off at LAX airport for her direct flight back to Cleveland, Ohio, where she was going to meet up with her mom and her little sister. And from there, they were going to hop in the car and go for a road trip to New York City for business. Her flight arrived on schedule in Ohio where she was greeted with all the love by her mom and her sister. So as the sisters waited for Deanna to finish up packing, they were just all at Deanna's house hanging out. Deanna was so excited for this trip to New York City and this time that she was going to be able to spend with her daughters, and she was on the phone telling Michael all about it while she gathered her things and got ready to hop in the car. The call was supposed to be rather quick, but it ended up being over two hours. Two hours of Deanna and Michael laughing, two hours of them bonding over the phone 3,000 miles apart, but it feeling like they were just in the same room together. Deanna recalls her conversation with Michael as being pretty lighthearted, them reminiscing, Michael telling Deanna about his upcoming trip the following Wednesday to Ohio where he was going to meet with this newly formed board of directors team that he had just put together for this new nonprofit that he was starting in his home state. Michael had been working so hard on this new organization that he named Bell's Lighthouse, and they would offer services to homeless teens. Michael's goal was to have multiple locations in a variety of states, and he was well on his way to accomplishing this goal, just like he had crushed every other goal in his life so far. Towards the end of their telephone call, the conversation shifted from lighthearted talk to talk about religion. Deanna had dedicated over 40 years of ministry to the gospel, so Michael striking up this conversation about religion with his mom made sense. But Michael had already had similar conversations about religion with his mom in the past, and she found herself retelling Michael's stories that he had already known. So while she's retelling these stories, Deanna insists to Michael that she say a prayer for him, which wasn't unusual. But she felt compelled at this particular moment to say this specific prayer. And as she began it, she realized that this prayer was just so much different than all of the others that she had said for Michael. 
And in the prayer, she found herself stopping like mid-sentence only to start up again. And she would stop again and she would start crying, stopping, restarting, stopping, restarting. And she was just wondering, why is this prayer so different and why do I feel this way? She closed her prayer with an amen and she heard Michael quietly and solemnly say amen on the other end of the line. Their call would come to an end very shortly after that prayer. And when Deanna hung up, she couldn't help but notice how much time that they had spent on the phone. Two hours and 17 minutes, like, holy smokes, she had to get in the car. Her daughters were waiting, like, she gathered up her stuff, the ladies loaded up, and they headed up to the gas station to fill up on gas and snacks. As soon as they were officially on the road to New York City, Deanna sent a text to Michael that said, headed for NYC, pray for our travel mercies. But after a couple minutes went by and there was no response, Deanna began to scratch her head. It wasn't like Michael or any of the Bell family to not promptly respond back to a text from one of their family members. They were super tight like this. Even being thousands of miles from each other, they were always just a call or text away from the comfort of their family. Deanna wondered to herself, but made up excuses for Michael in her head. They had just hung up from this lengthy phone call. Maybe he laid down to take a nap or hopped in the shower, but her motherly instincts just kept nagging at her. Something wasn't right. But what could have happened to Michael in the minutes since they had hung up the phone? Nothing, she thought to herself. Michael was just fine. For a good portion of their drive, they would have to drive through Pennsylvania, and the three ladies would have no cell service. They were familiar with this part of the drive from past trips. So before losing reception, Deanna called Michael, who she still hadn't heard from. His phone rang. No answer. Okay, she thought. Let me just text him again. He'll get my, you know, messages in my call when he wakes up. No problem. So she just sends him a text that says, call your mom. Love ya. Hours go by and the trio finally arrives under the bright lights of New York City. Deanna recalls it being so magical. They had anticipated this trip for so long and the girls had finally arrived. Happy that they had made it safely, Deanna wanted to share this magical moment with Michael and she wanted to hear his voice because he still hadn't called her. Or, she thought, maybe he had, but she didn't have cell service, so she tries calling him again. His phone rings and rings and rings and finally it goes to voicemail. So she leaves him a message and just says, hey, Mikey, it's your mom. We're in NYC. It's beautiful. Give me a call. Okay. Love you. Bye. She hangs up after leaving that message, you know, a little bothered because she was really hoping to hear her son's voice, but not as bothered as she would be a little while later when Michael's little sister asks his older sister if she's heard from Mikey lately. The sister says no and kind of asks her the same question back and she says no also, which worries Deanna sick. And she goes into mommy mode, just letting the girls know, hey, he's okay, he probably fell asleep or he's in the shower, he's gonna call us later. But Deanna could see the worry in her daughter's faces. This was the same worry they all felt after making countless phone calls to their father's cell phone the day that he was killed. Deanna could not let them relive these memories, so she had to do what she had to do and just distract them from all of the negative thoughts. Their weekend played out and Deanna, although she was enjoying her time, was worried sick because every attempt to reach Mikey went unanswered. 
And she would send him quite a few messages during that trip, giving him the play-by-play of all of the details of this girl's trip. Deanna recalled the trip being one of the happiest times she's ever spent with her daughters. On their way home on September 18th, the drive was very different from the drive to New York City. There was no laughter. There was no joking. The ride was virtually silent, and the air was just filled with this question, where was Mikey? As they did their best to believe that, Michael just turned off his phone for the weekend, focusing on all of the details of this new nonprofit and this meeting that he had coming up on Wednesday. It just didn't seem right. It didn't make sense. It was so out of Michael's character to just shut off his phone without any warning or shut his phone off at all. Michael's older sister finally just breaks. She can't take it anymore and calls one of her friends that lives in the same apartment complex as them to ask if she sees Michael's Range Rover in the parking lot. Yes, his car's there, but what's not there was the sister's car. And the sister was like, what? Like, why wouldn't my car be there? Michael would never drive her car over his. She had an older Camry and he had a beautiful Range Rover. So this was shocking news to her to say the least. The friend goes down and knocks at the apartment and that knock at the door went unanswered. So now they're really confused. They're like, where did he go in the sister's car? His sister then calls the maintenance supervisor who holds a key to the apartment, asking if they can go in and do a welfare check. They said that they didn't mind assisting authorities to do this as this was the apartment complex's policy. Fine by the bells, they totally didn't mind. So authorities and the maintenance supervisor go in and everything looks fine. There's no sign of Michael, which is actually a relief to the family because they became super upset at the thought of Michael being alone and maybe suffering a medical emergency. The women make their way back to Cleveland, and as soon as they get in the house, Deanna jumps on the phone and calls the Los Angeles Police Department to file a missing persons report, and is only shocked to find out that this report has to be filed in person. Obviously, she's frustrated. She's 3,000 miles away, but Deanna did exactly what she had to do. When Dion and her daughter land at LAX, she immediately begins screening every tall, dark-skinned man in her sights, knowing that her Mikey just had to be around there somewhere. A shuttle dropped off Deanna and her oldest daughter at their apartment, and Deanna's heart just sank when she laid eyes on Michael's Range Rover, just thinking, where is he? As the two approach the apartment, Deanna asks God for the strength to get through this. She's the only parent her three children have, and she had to stay strong. She promised her daughter that she would do everything in her power to bring her brother back to her as she gave her the biggest hug before they entered through the apartment door. It wasn't until she was inside the apartment that she realized that she had left her phone on the shuttle. It must have fallen off of her lap when she stood up to get off at their stop because she was sending messages on the ride to the apartment. Leaving her phone behind had just devastated her. She had promised to make contact with so many people that were worried sick about Michael, and she had no phone numbers memorized. So Deanna found herself having to reach down deep, She took deep breaths, she composed herself, and she got to work for the reason that she was there, to find her Mikey. The first thing Deanna noticed when she walked into Michael's room, that there was a cell phone on his bed. Puzzled, she called her daughter in and asked if that was Michael's. 
And his sister confirmed that, yes, that was his phone. And there on the chair was his iPad. And to Michael, his iPad was just as important as his phone. Everything in Michael's room seemed to be in place, leaving no clues as to anything that could have happened. The only thing that they found puzzling in the apartment was a plate of moldy chicken and beans that was found inside the microwave. Deanna's first thought was, how was this food already moldy? She had just talked to Michael a couple days ago, and her kids had been inside the apartment days before, you know, the sister's trip. So Deanna wondered, okay, could that food have molded in just a few days since she hadn't heard from Michael? And did Michael warm that food up himself? How long did Michael have that food in the microwave that he put it in, started the microwave, and then was distracted within obviously just a couple of minutes to where he never went back to grab the food, which she was assuming was probably his dinner? The keys to Michael's Range Rover were also nowhere to be found, but the Range Rover was sitting right outside in the parking lot. This was also super heartbreaking for Deanna and his sister to learn because how were they going to go about their search? Well, it was a long ride on public transportation to the police station, but nothing was going to stop them. A missing persons report was filed after hours and hours of paperwork, which just left the ladies exhausted. When they arrive back at the apartment, though, they receive a phone call from the officer at the police station that had helped them process the paperwork, saying that they had located Michael. And the ladies were just overcome with joy and relief. So this officer had just let them know, you know, I'm going to make contact with the officer that had met with Michael and just wait for the call like he'll be reaching out to his family. So Deanna's like, hallelujah, like it's over, Michael's safe, now we just have to wait for his phone call, like thank God this wasn't what it seemed. The girls were able to breathe easy, but that was only until the next call came in and it wasn't from Michael. Actually, Michael hadn't been found. The call was coming from a missing persons detective from the LAPD who had no idea why the ladies had gotten a call stating that Michael had been found or located because he hadn't been. Not in person, not by phone. Like, what kind of sick joke was this officer trying to play on them? So the missing persons detective apologizes on behalf of this other officer and gets to the point of her phone call, which was the schedule of time to come out and search the apartment. But before that detective arrives, they actually call the bells back with an update. Michael had been spotted in Fresno, which is only about 300 miles north of Los Angeles. After seeing Michael's missing persons report go out, two officers said that they had made contact with a man matching Michael's description along Highway 5 a couple days before. The officers stated that Michael had run out of gas along the highway. He didn't have a gas can, but he did accept a ride from the officers to the nearest gas station which was a Chevron located at West Panoch Road in the very rural city of Fireball, which is very close to Fresno. And when I say rural area, I mean, there is nothing out there. I've driven this road a million times. I know the exit. I know the gas station. And every time I make this drive, I wonder where the employees of these like gas stations and fast food restaurants have to drive from just to get there because there is nothing nearby. So the man that was believed to be Michael that was picked up by the officers didn't say much, but he carried a box and a bag with him 
The officers did not ask him what was inside the box or the bag. And the officers said they actually didn't have much conversation with the guy at all. They picked him up, they dropped him off at the Chevron, and they wished him well, never making contact with the man again. Which to me seems a little bit weird because how was he supposed to get back to his car? To me, I kind of think in this situation, like wouldn't they have allowed him to just run in, grab a gas can, fill it up, and then drive him back? This part of the case just doesn't sit well with me. And to be 100% honest with you, I don't think that the officers actually picked up Michael. I think that it was somebody else. I think it was someone else who got really lucky in this situation where the cops picked him up, drove him to the gas station, and then the man must have told the officers, hey, like someone's on their way to help me or I only have a few more miles to go. I can use this payphone, you know, to call my friend or my family for help. Like, I don't need a ride back to the car because how are they expecting him to get back to the car at like three in the morning? It just, it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem like it's something that Michael would have done in this situation. And especially knowing that that's not even his car. So if he's only run out of gas, why wouldn't he have accepted the ride from the officers, grabbed a gas can, filled it with some gas, and then asked them for a ride back? I feel like it wasn't Michael and leaving the car allowed it to be towed, which it was shortly after, and it wouldn't be retrieved until later when the Bells went to pick it up. So sorry for that rant, but I just had to put that in there because like I said, it just, that part of the case really bothers me. So when the ladies get this phone call about the two officers that had made contact with Michael, obviously they're so excited to hear this and they can't help but think that Michael must be on his way back home somehow, some way, and it was only a matter of time before this missing persons detective would locate him safe. Two missing persons detectives arrive at the apartment to do the search and to collect DNA from Deanna and request dental records, which absolutely frightens her because she knows why they want DNA. This process and the time in this case just breaks Deanna and she is just crying. Why is all of this happening to her, to her Michael, to her family? They had gone through so much with Michael Sr.'s death. She is just in disbelief that these types of things are happening to these amazing men in her life. Camera footage obtained from the apartment by the detectives show Michael wearing dark sunglasses, a white shirt, and jeans on the 16th, the same day that his mother last spoke to him. In the footage, you can see Michael making two trips out of the apartment, carrying out a total of two boxes. The morning after this meeting with the detective and the search, Deanna and her daughter woke up bright and early with no updates in the case and without Michael returning to the apartment. So Deanna puts boots on the ground and she gets to work. Her first stop is at an apartment complex nearby where she knew Michael had friends at. But this search for these friends was going to take work because she didn't know which of the six or seven buildings they lived in, let alone what unit. So she starts knocking on doors one by one. She tirelessly showed Michael's photo to strangers, repeating her speech about her missing son and her desperate plea to find him. Some people had never seen Michael while others had recognized him from the area. She was also able to locate a few people who actually knew him personally, but none of them had seen him in a few days, so they were no help, really. 
A middle-aged woman who Deanna had spoke with said that she knew Michael from the area and she was just gushing about what a great guy he was and he was so helpful that he had actually helped her get her granddaughter to school when she didn't have the means to do so herself. And Deanna couldn't help but think that that was him. That was her Mikey, always out doing good in the world. But at the same time, this worried her. He was so trusting and he was so nice to people that he barely even knew. So this meeting with the woman not only filled her heart, but it also scared her a bit. But she reflected on the way that Michael was raised, how her and Michael Sr. brought up all three of their children to always do well, treat people with respect, and show kindness no matter what. Of all of the people that Deanna met with and spoke to at the apartment complex that day, one person in particular stood out to her, a man who introduced himself as Trent. After visiting a few nearby businesses, Deanna started her walk back to Michael's apartment, and that's when she was approached by Trent. Trent told Deanna that he knew that she was around and that he and Michael had had a mutual friend by the name of Connie who lived nearby. Trent told Deanna that he was willing to introduce her to Connie in hopes of being able to locate Michael. Deanna was all for this meeting, and so the two headed off together to go meet with Connie. But something was off with Trent, Deanna says, and there was no denying that. At Connie's apartment, Trent begins to immediately start leading the conversation. He looks at Connie and he's like, hey, Connie, this is Mikey's mom, the lady that I was telling you about earlier. She says that she hasn't seen Mikey lately. Have you seen him? The interaction, Deanna says, was just odd from the get-go, and it was obvious that Connie really had nothing to say to Deanna, and everything that she did say was being coached by Trent. Connie looks puzzled and confused, looking at Trent and then slowly moving over and facing Deanna, saying, nope. Haven't seen him in a few days. The coaching continues and Trent says, didn't you tell me he helped you and your sister throw a party a couple days ago? Connie looked back at Trent reluctantly and answered, yeah, we threw a party for my sister. We didn't have enough food and stuff for the party, so Mikey brought over what we needed. Deanna immediately starts pressing for specifics about this party and Connie quickly answered, all I know is that we met him through Trent. He was a cool guy. He came over once after the party, but I haven't seen him since. So as the three stood there, Trent again tried to lead into another part of the conversation. And Connie just shuts him up saying, you know, I got to go back inside and I got to take care of my son. It was obvious that Trent was trying to get Connie involved in something that she wanted nothing to do with. Deanna kindly thanked Connie for her time and just says, you know, if you see Michael, can you please have him call his mother? Connie agrees that she will and she just shuts the door and Deanna says that she has never felt right ever since this interaction. So as Deanna makes her way back to Michael's, she keeps replaying this interaction in her head. She sits for a couple of hours inside the apartment until she can't sit anymore and she returns back to Connie's apartment, but this time she goes back alone. Connie answers her door with her young son at her feet. Deanna reintroduces herself and just asks for clarification about their conversation earlier. Connie couldn't really offer any more new information, just telling her again, you know, I met Michael a few days before the party and he was really nice. Deanna accepts the information and what Connie has to say, but says that she has just one more question for Connie as a mother of a son. 
Put yourself in my shoes. How would you feel if your son was missing? Connie says that she would feel sad exactly how Deanna felt and that she was sorry. Deanna says, okay, anything you can tell me about my son or where he could be, please tell me. Deanna watches Connie's facial expressions change and Connie begins to tell Deanna, Trent and your son had an argument the other day and they fought in front of your son's apartment, but I'm not sure what the fight was about. She says, after the fight, Trent showed up to my apartment and brought over a few knickknacks along with two large vases filled with bamboo. And Trent told her like, hey, these belong to Michael, but they're yours now. So Connie kind of thought that was weird, but she's like, okay. And then later on in conversation, Trent tells Connie that he had been holding on to some furniture for Michael, but that he just took it to this furniture store around the corner who bought it from him. Deanna's heart just falls to her feet. She doesn't have the words and she doesn't have the strength to continue on. So she kindly thanks Connie once again in the two part ways. Back at Michael's apartment, she couldn't make sense of anything that she learned, but Deanna does wonder if the fight between Trent and Michael can be the explanation as to why one of the windows in Michael's Range Rover were broken. Deanna paid a visit to the furniture store that Connie had mentioned, and it was confirmed that Trent did come in and sell a bed and a mattress. So how was Trent so sure that Michael wouldn't be coming back for his things, and why would Trent just be going and selling Michael's stuff off? Deanna immediately gives all of this information to detectives who start working on locating Trent. They would make contact with Trent, whose last name is Johnson, someone who was familiar to the system, but for the most part who was clean at this time. They didn't feel like Trent had anything malicious to do with Michael's disappearance, but Deanna felt very differently about him. Deanna made contact personally with the patrolman who claimed to have given Michael a ride that night that his car ran out of gas along Highway 5. The two officers didn't have much information. They just said, you know, he was driving this 2002 light blue Camry. It ran out of gas. We didn't ask any questions. We didn't ask him for his ID. But we're sure it's Michael based on this missing persons report. Well, Deanna thinks about it, and Michael and Trent, ironically, have a very similar look. They're both about, you know, the same skin tone, the same height, the same everything. So she wants a positive ID to be made by the patrolman. Who did you actually give a ride to? Was it Trent or was it Michael? And they tell her again, they didn't check any IDs. They barely even talked to the man who was very quiet. This caught Deanna's ear because Michael was the opposite. He was a very, very social person. After the officers answered a series of Deanna's questions, they didn't feel like they had any useful responses for Deanna, and they end up calling the call off. They're like, we're done. Basically, we have no other information to help you. This call is over. Like, we're done. Goodbye. And this hurt Deanna's heart, how these patrolmen could be so unsympathetic to her as a grieving mother who's just trying to locate her son. The phone call that she thought was going to provide answers actually just stressed her out even more and leaving her with so many more questions and answers. And these are questions that Deanna still lives with today. Michael has been missing for over 11 years. That's 11 years of his mother Deanna living with a broken heart, 11 years of his mother searching, 11 years of his mother questioning Trent's knowledge of what happened to her son, 
and 11 years of Michael's son living without his father. Where is Michael Darnell Bell Jr.? Was that actually Michael that the patrolman picked up at 3 a.m.? Was it Trent that had something to do with Michael's disappearance? Michael never would have gone out of contact with his family. He would have never abandoned his life. He would never have just dropped everything and walked away from his nonprofit that meant so much to him. If you have any information on the disappearance of Michael Bell Jr., you can report it to the Los Angeles Police Department at 213-996-1800. The case ID is 111-111-8099. That's six leading ones and then 8099. The link to purchase Deanna's book is in the episode notes wherever you're listening now, as well as all of our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. So go check it out. It's a super easy read. It's about 102 pages. Definitely worth it. And you'll learn a lot more about who Michael was as a person. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this very special episode of Those Murder Girls podcast, and I'll see you next week. Bye, guys.